everyone. Welcome. Welcome to those joining us online as well. Uh, just a little bit of a heads up before we get into the message that as the message concludes, we will have a song. And during that song, uh, communion will be passed out to those who wish to partake. Uh, the first Sunday of the month, we, uh, we usually would come forward and grab it, but because of COVID stuff, we're just going to bring it to you. So it's all sanitary and good. And then we will uh, partake together. So just be ready for that during that song. So we'll be in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And so fitting that we would sing a song about our God being a Savior, because Jesus is the Savior of the world. And what's so amazing is He's the Lord. He's God in the flesh. But in coming to earth, He had physical needs. He had the need as a baby to be held. He had the need of breathing oxygen and eating food and drinking and shelter from the cold. And He humbled Himself to experience life as a human being. We read in what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So he put off the glories of heaven and became uh, like a poor person so that we could become rich through salvation and forgiveness and uh, we, we are the ones in abject spiritual poverty that he came to seek and to save. And he preached repentance to those in Israel, to those under the law of Moses who were condemned by it, who needed a savior. And really needs, it's going to be a recurring theme as we go through this passage today, because they had a need. They needed to be saved. They needed to be forgiven. And through Jesus, that need was met. But if they wanted to receive it, they needed to come God's way. It was through repentance, through faith in Jesus and receiving the gospel. I think as humans, we can really idolize autonomy and independence. Yet Jesus, he did not have that because he was dependent on the Father. He was reliant upon him. He did what God told him to do. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So if we want to enter the kingdom of God, then we need to choose God's way, and that's through Christ. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth, for the way of salvation that you've made through the gospel. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who have received Christ through faith, that we would see our continual need to be guided by you, to be protected and provided for by you, that we would never be wise in our own eyes, but to fear the Lord and to follow Christ to allow the Spirit to lead and guide and direct our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are a Savior, and that we had no hope of heaven on our own, but you met our need by sending Jesus. And thank you that he always did the will of the Father, and through him we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to just say congrats to those HSC uh, exam-taking students who are wrapping up their career at college, and, and it's like, freedom! But you know, freedom from one thing, it means you need to do something else, right? Uh, freedom from exams and school means you need to go to university if you want to pursue that career, or you need to find a TAFE course, or you need to find a job, or you need to move out or something, right? <laughs> uh, 
as long as you live on this planet, there are things you will need to do. You will need to get up out of bed in the morning, and you'll need to uh, pay an invoice or learn a new task or move house, read the Bible and pray. There's things that you need to do, and you know you need them. But we can forget um, how much we need the Lord. And Jesus wasn't exempt from these needs, the, the need to obey God and to provide that example for us. And Jesus, after it was acknowledged by Peter that he was the Son of God, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 21. He said, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus knew he needed to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was waiting him, awaiting him there on Calvary's hill. And he was keen to do so even at a great personal cost. In obedience to the Father, he supplied all our need. So we're going to pick up our passage in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he came near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a coat tied, colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. As they're approaching the Mount of Olives from the east, he directs two of his disciples to go and take this colt. And a donkey colt, it's less than four years old. And it's pointed out that the donkey had never been sat upon. Now, um, that is not a natural behavior for animals to be ridden. It takes a degree of halter training and then physical training that can take months to uh, be able to safely ride a donkey. And it's amazing that he needed a donkey to ride, and the one that he chose was one that had never been ridden before. And he had need of the donkey. He freely admitted this, though he's the Lord. And we see the grace of God that he directed his disciples to do his work and how he makes useful something that had never been used before in that way. This donkey had never been ridden, but Jesus is like, I'm going to ride that colt that you find. And I love that there's this donkey that's never been ridden before from an unnamed village. We see this picture of God's sovereignty and grace that God calls us, he looses us, he frees us to do his will, and to serve him in the things that he needs us to do. And it's like God doesn't need us as far as like, Jesus could have walked, but he needed to ride a donkey to fulfill the scripture that said the Messiah is coming, the king is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So he needed that to fulfill God's will. Without training, this donkey, enabled by the presence of God, would do something it had never done before, and this really gives us confidence in Christ that he's going to empower us. He can use us. He can use the donkey. He can use us to accomplish his will. And it's in, in like one moment, God can loose you from your routine, from the life that you've previously known, and he can choose to use you to introduce him to others as the savior of the world, the king of kings. I mean, that's, this is something that the donkey had never experienced. This was something totally new to the people of Jerusalem. But it was all in God's plan, and it was in his timing. So what is foreign to you, what's unnatural to you, something you've never been trained to do, you can do through the grace of God as he calls you, 
as he helps you. Continuing in verse 32. So those who were sent went on their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. I like that they found things exactly as Jesus had said. He hadn't told them very much, but he gave them enough to be able to obey him. Right? They said, if anyone talks to you when you're loosing the colt, this is what you say. That was their only real instruction, and, and they had need of that. Because someone asked, the owner said, what, what are you doing? They said, the Lord has need of him. Now, we don't know these owners, if, if they knew Jesus, if they had any previous dealings with him. But because the Lord needed him, they were happy to, to lend him. They didn't ask, well, how are you going to use the colt? Or tell them, by the way, no one's ever ridden that colt before. I mean, Jesus is the Lord. He didn't really know. He didn't need anyone to tell him about it because he knows all things. I'm reminded of the Philippian church. They contributed financially to the needs of Paul. And he knew that the bounty he enjoyed, it came at a cost of someone else. Someone else had paid for him to receive that bounty and that blessing. And he said this in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Jesus needed the colt. It was provided, and God is also able to supply all your need through the grace that is in Jesus. And if we're going to have Jesus as Savior, won't we trust him as the one who gives us all things that we need? The colt's brought to Jesus. The disciples, it says, put their clothes on him. Jesus has sat upon this colt that had never been ridden, and he keeps his seat. It wasn't a bit of an adventure. He just sat on it. And uh, as he went towards Jerusalem, the scriptures say, through the accounts that they put clothes on the ground, some spread palm fronds on the ground before him. And this procession is often referred as the triumphal entry. And that's playing off of a Roman triumph, which was one of the greatest honors that was bestowed upon a Roman citizen. So after a notable battle or something of the sort, a victorious general, they could apply to the Senate to receive this honor, to have a triumph. And if approved, this was in a very extravagant procession. There were festivities that would last a day or more. There would be speeches given. And then the councils and politicians, they would lead this procession. Notable captives would be arrayed, usually in chains for effect, perhaps even going to their execution. But these, these great enemies that had been defeated and sub, subdued, they would be walking before, and they could rehearse the fight. They were very much into the drama, and, and so they're rehearsing the victory of the battle, and there are musicians playing, there's people waving flags, there's exotic animals, and the spoils being shown, the gold, the silver, and finally, crowned with laurel, you would have the imperator, who the victorious general, or whoever the triumph was in honor of, would be crowned in laurel, sitting in a chariot behind four white horses, with a slave that was whispering and repeating in his ear, uh, with the throng of people praising and, and cheering, memento mori, which is, remember you are mortal. Like, don't take this to heart, because you're not a god. You may be acting like a god today, but 
you're still a man. And after the imperator came through, there would be his children on horses, his officers, and then his soldiers. And then finally, the, the, the crowd of people, just all reveling and celebrating this great victory of Rome. They slowly made their way through the main, because uh, Roman cities were very much in the same pattern. They would go down this main drag, and at the end of it was the temple, and they would offer up offerings to the gods. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus was very careful to not really declare publicly that he was the Messiah. People would ask him, but like in the case with Peter, he had asked him, who do people say that I am? He says, oh, they say Elijah, John the Baptist. Well, who do you say that I am? And uh, we see this in Luke 9, 20 through 22. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So Jesus is doing these marvelous signs and wonders, all the time pretty much quashing this, this identity that was true, but he said, I'm going to suffer. The Son of Man must suffer and must die and rise from the dead. There were occasions where people wanted to make him king by force, but that wasn't God's way. God's way is that he would be rejected, that he would be crucified, and that he would rise from the dead. A king received by faith, not by the might or the will of the people, but by God who ordained him and who called him as the Savior of the world, a lamb without blemish and spot. So when Jesus is riding in Jerusalem, this is momentous because he is being really revealed to the nation that he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And he, we, he is revealed as the king spoken of in Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus wasn't in a chariot pulled by four white horses. He was riding a colt, a beast of burden, according to the scriptures. And there's never been another king like Jesus, one who is meek and lowly and having salvation, who is just. The everlasting almighty God, he took human form and he revealed himself to sinners who need salvation. Continuing in Luke 19, 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. As they reached the lookout there at the Mount of Olives, it's like the disciples were just stirred up to rejoice and to praise God. Um, and that if I did have some pictures to show you uh, during my trips to Israel. And uh, so you have, we'll see here if they show up. But... Uh, well, there you go. All right, so this is the view from the Mount of Olives, and it slopes away rather steeply. And this is the East Gate, or the Golden Gate. In Hebrew, it's translated the Gate of Mercy. So we can go to the next one. 
these were taken on different times. So, um, so this is on that descent, very steep. It's a, it's a bit of a walk heading down towards the Golden Gate. And that's the Temple Mount there. And this is, the, this is as close as you can really uh, get to get the perspective of it. Um, but yeah, you have the Golden Gate that's now sealed, awaiting the opening for the king to go through. So they're praising the Lord. There's this great celebration of all the things that have happened, all what God has done, because it says the things they had seen. Like these are people who had walked with Jesus. They knew what he had done. And they had seen blind people, born blind, uh, able to see. They had seen paralyzed people walking and leaping. They had seen lepers cleansed. Most recently, that was recorded, was Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. Jesus raised him from the dead. And many people believed because of this miracle. Though Jesus told them the kingdom of God is not going to appear immediately, it did not stop them from proclaiming the truth that Jesus is that king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words of blessing and praise, they remind me of what the angels sang at Christ's birth. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And it's so fitting that those who receive salvation from the Lord would praise him and bless him. There's a parallel account in Mark 11, 9 through 10. It says, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna, it means save now or please save. And it's praise, it's adoration of God. And the accounts in Matthew 21 and John 12, they include the shouting of Hosanna, and notes that people carried palm branches, and that's why it's commonly called Palm Sunday. So everyone's rejoicing. People before and behind are, are celebrating the Lord Jesus, but the Pharisees were not impressed by this display. They say, teacher, so they're not calling him Messiah or Savior. Teacher, quiet down your disciples. Rebuke them. And Jesus, the King of Kings, refused He says, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. Like the stones know who I am. You don't believe who I am, but the stones know, they know. This day was planned from the beginning and no scolding of men or any scheme of Satan could prevent what was happening. And in every sense, this procession of disciples and Jesus was far more glorious than any Roman triumph. Picture it, you have a crowd where the person leading the crowd is one who was once blind but now can see. A paralyzed person that's now shouting and jumping for joy. Um, A woman who was possessed with demons once now praising God in her right mind. You have a man who was laid dead for four days in a grave who is now walking with everybody else and clearly alive. And this is, this is the people that were surrounding Jesus and praising him. It wasn't gold or silver or exotic beasts that Jesus was putting on display, but his disciples, those who he had sought and saved, they were glorifying him and praising him. The enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ, they could protest. They could complain all they want, but they were powerless to silence his redeemed. To put a damper on this joyful proclamation of salvation by grace through faith. 
It's like Jesus' disciples, the cult, and even the stones knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. This passage puts in context the things that the people were shouting. And it also alludes to the sacrifice of Christ, which was coming. You have Jesus, who called himself the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way that we can come to salvation and eternal life. And he's going through that gate of mercy. It just There's so much tied up in it. It's really very glorious. The things that he would accomplish is the most monumental triumph the world had ever seen in seeking and saving sinners and in glorifying himself. So Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Jesus, he's the only way to righteousness. It's like if you're going to be righteous, you must go through him. And the only way is through faith in him. He's the only way that our need can be met for forgiveness and reconciliation with God and salvation. And we need to enter this gate. The Pharisees couldn't see it. They were blinded by unbelief. But his disciples, they proclaimed him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a day of revelation, a day of rejoicing, a day of gladness. And Hosanna to the God of Israel that sent the Savior sinner's need. I love it. God is the Lord. You have that imagery then of the sacrifice being bound to the altar. And how Christ was um, crucified. How he was bound by the Father's will and also bound by obedience to embrace that cross and to go the distance for us. And he would endure this in mere days. Let's always be those who give thanks to him. I mean, how awesome is that passage? You could just spend the rest of the day right there and really eternity in that space. Continuing on, Luke 19, 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." Now, this is quite a surprise, isn't it? Jesus has now reached that moment where he's been proclaimed as Messiah, Savior, and King, but it wasn't handshaking, back slapping, high fiving, 
he weeps over the city. He looks over it and he weeps. There was satisfaction in the fulfillment of God's will, but he has such love for the people that he was tinged with great sadness because so many missed the fact that he was the Savior God had sent, that he would be rejected, that they, their eyes were blinded by unbelief, that they would not receive him, that in just days they would be saying, crucify him. They would be shouting for his blood, many of them. He knew what the future held, that in 40 years, actually about a little less than 40 years, Jerusalem would be laid waste by the Romans. Shouts of joy that he heard that day, they'd be replaced with shrieks of terror. And the happiness that people had, it would be long forgotten as they were besieged, as their children were cut down, as the, the Temple Mount was thrown, just torn apart and the city laid waste. They would be surrounded, it would be demolished, because they did not know the time of their visitation. It's like if they had responded to Jesus wholesale in faith, at seeing him as the Messiah, their future would have been different because he would have been ruling and reigning over them. He could have protected them or provided for them. But because they would reject him, they rejected their salvation. They rejected their hope. In a few days, he would be betrayed, delivered to Pontius Pilate, and the Jews would demand his crucifixion. Their future could have been marked with peace with God. And we look upon Christ today, do we see him as king? Or do you see him as just a historical figure? This was a day spoken of by the prophet Daniel, but the reality was hidden from their eyes. It wasn't long before this, as mentioned, that Jesus had gone to the tomb of Lazarus. He knew that he had been dead four days before he arrived there, and he told his disciples what he would do. He says, Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going to go to wake him up. And they just go, oh, he's sleeping. He's gonna... It's good for him, right, to recover. He's like, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, but uh, let's go. And so he, he goes with a point. There was a whole purpose in allowing him to die so that he could be raised from the dead and people would believe. And when he came to the tomb, it says in John eleven thirty three. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Jesus' tears were not of regret. Because, and, and the fact that he knew what he was going to do in a few moments, it did not stunt his empathy whatsoever because he saw them weeping. He felt their pain and he wept with them. And when the Jews saw him crying, they, they realized it was out of love. And that's why Jesus wept over the city because he loved his people. He loved people, even his enemies who would reject him. Now Jesus, he asked that the stone be rolled away. And he lifted up his eyes and he, he prayed like, Father, thank you that you've heard me. He continues in John eleven forty two, And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him 
and let him go. It's like the colt was loosed because Jesus had need of him. And Lazarus was raised from the dead and loosed from his grave clothes so people would know he had been sent by God, that he was the resurrection and the life, that he was the son of God who would demonstrate God's love by going to Calvary to die for sinners so they could be reconciled to God. Isn't that awesome? Continuing in Luke 19, 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. In the Roman triumph, the imperator would go to the the temple and offer sacrifices to the gods. Jesus entered the temple and he cleansed it as he had at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. What was intended by God to be a house of prayer for all nations, it had been a, a precinct of profitable business where there were buyers and sellers. And so devout Jews and pilgrims would come from all over the empire and offer sacrifices and worship in Jerusalem but they only received the shekel or a half shekel. So it was necessary to have your money changed into the temple currency. They only received that because um, that was the only way you could pay the tax. Now, the first time Jesus cleansed the temple, it mentions he drove out sheep, oxen, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. And he called it, he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Uh, it seems at that time there were animals there for sale. So people would come and they would have animals that were uh, approved for sacrifice and they could buy them. They could maybe say, oh, that, that sheep's looking a little you know, questionable. I think you need to buy one of the, the proper ones. And they, they were probably fairly expensive. Um, and so he calls them here, those who bought and sold, a den of thieves. And Jesus quoted from Isaiah 56, 7. Concerning those who keep God's covenant, he says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So there's the house of prayer. Now the den of thieves reference, that comes from Jeremiah 7.11, where God spoke against idolatrous people and how Solomon's temple had become a den of thieves. And it would be destroyed like Shiloh. So that had happened. God's word had been fulfilled, but it was going to happen again by the hands of the Romans, as Jesus had just said as he descended towards the city, that not one stone would be left unturned. Now, I feel compelled to point out in no gospel account of the cleansing of the temple, does it explicitly say Jesus was angry? Some people will perhaps assume he must have been angry, to cleanse the temple. Now, I think if parents are able to discipline their children in love without being driven by anger, it follows Jesus doesn't need to be furious to overturn a table or to drive out an animal, um, though in his situation, righteous anger was certainly justified. It just doesn't say that, and it wouldn't be right for us to use the fact that he drove out the money changers as justification to be angry, right? Like, I'm going to Jesus was angry, so I can be angry. Well, be angry and do not sin. He can do that. I'm not so much. So praise the Lord. He, he gives us great grace. Um, so 
So Jesus taught a lesson to people that day, and it says he daily continued to teach in the temple. His wisdom, his understanding, it was quite lost on the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees because they sought to destroy him. These were the people that Jesus wept over. Out of his love, he drew near to them. He poured out his heart to them. He was still teaching them to the end about the kingdom of God. People who were unwilling to receive him. He was viewed as an unwanted intruder and rabble-rouser in his own father's house. But at the same time, all the people were very attentive to hear him. We'll see that they, they hung on every word. And the chief priests and Pharisees, they weren't unable to do anything because they feared the people. As the days passed, we'll see he confounded them at every turn. They tried to test him. They tried to trick him. They laid traps for him, but he saw right through their schemes and silenced them. They were scheming to hang him on a cross. And just like they couldn't stop the disciples from singing Hosanna, they couldn't stop Jesus from being offered up as the Lamb of God who would save sinners. God had a purpose for him being there. And God would see it accomplished. Censure would not silence him. Death would not destroy him because he would rise from the dead in eternal glory. What an awesome Savior we have. So as we move into communion, if you could turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. just want to read this passage. And it connects so well with the passage we read this morning. One Corinthians eleven, starting in verse twenty three, where Paul was writing to believers. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We receive communion in remembrance of what Jesus has, the price he has paid, and it's a proclamation of his death and resurrection. His death in dying for sinners, it demonstrated the love of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we partake of the bread and the cup, um, which symbolizes his body that was broken for us, and his blood that was shed, which has atoned for our sins. And we have this new covenant that we've entered into. So what has occurred by faith in Christ, by partaking, we make a proclamation that we are indeed born again, that we do have been saved by Christ, and we have received him and inherited eternal life. And I started thinking about bread and the, the wine, the cup that Jesus gave to his disciples. There was required for both of them quite an extensive process. Like bread doesn't grow on trees. Uh, to make bread, you would have to plow a field. You would have to sow in the furrows. You would need to water it. You'd need to harvest it, thresh it, winnow it, you would need to grind it into flour. You need to mix it with water, and then you need to bake it in an oven. So it's quite a long process from seed to bread. 
And same thing with wine. It requires the planting and the tending of those vines, that you need to harvest them. You need to trample them under your feet, squeeze them into the vat, collect that, then allow it to ferment, and then pour the wine off the lees. And that would be the dead yeast bodies that can form in the bottom. That makes it bitter. So there's a process that both bread and wine must go through. And according to God's plan, there was a process Jesus had to go through. That he needed to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He needed to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. He needed to be crucified for the sins of the world and be raised from the dead so that those who partake in him in faith could have eternal life. And you think of the process of the grinding of that, the flour, right? The pulverizing of the meal. You think of the crushing of the grapes. And that was very much the process Jesus would go through that his body would be broken, his blood would be poured out, and that those who receive him by faith, um, we receive his salvation. And so that cup and that bread that sustain our bodies, it's in Christ that we have a savior who sustains our souls, that he gives us new life through him. So in partaking of this, we acknowledge our need. Not just our need to eat and to drink to live, but our need for Christ, that we can be born again, that we could be forgiven. We need a savior. And so we get to be in this moment like those disciples who were going before and behind Jesus as he came into the city, who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our lives can be a testimony of his salvation and his redemption and reconciliation. And that is glorious what God has done, that we can praise him now and forever. So we say, Lord, save. Lord, have your way in each one and be glorified. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you are an awesome God who has saved us by the grace through faith uh, that the gospel requires. And we thank you, Lord, that you are good and your mercy endures forever. And we thank you that Jesus was uh, that sacrifice that paid for our sin, and the atonement has been made. You are glorious, Lord, and I pray that you would show us our great need, our great need for repentance, for forgiveness, from reconcil for reconciliation with you, that you would help us, Lord, to walk in your ways and do your will. And I pray that our lives would be a declaration of your reality and your salvation that we who were once blind, we were dead in sins and trespasses, we were paralyzed. Lord, you have raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with you. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you've accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I please have the worship team come up to lead in a song? And during this time, the elements will be passed around, and then I will, once we have all received, I will lead us in a prayer together.